Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, I want to wish you a happy fourth Sunday of Easter uh, and the fourth week of our series called The Beautiful Gospel. Uh, In this time, we're doing our best to put together a coherent theological picture. We're kind of putting a bunch of pieces together. Uh, We're exploring things like what it means to be human, things like salvation, resurrection, and last week, the scripture themselves. So last week was a little bit interesting, uh, where I usually speak uh, and do sermons from the scripture. Uh, Last week, we did a a sermon about the scripture. Uh, So if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it uh, via podcast. Um, What we learned is we learned that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus as a story. It has this dynamic movement toward a surprise ending, the surprise ending of Jesus Christ who announces a kingdom of love, cancels our indebtedness to God by taking the world of our sin upon himself, disarms the principalities and powers through forgiveness, and then defeats death through resurrection. Yes, that's good news. Uh, it's, all, it's this amazing narrative about life and death and love and uh, generosity and forgiveness and justice and resurrection, and it's just, just packed with all kinds of wonder and beauty and amazement. Uh, so that's the biblical story. Meanwhile, um, back at home, we live our lives of work and responsibility and marriage. I'll say that with a smile. Um, In marriage and kids and in-laws and soccer practice and movies and vacation and friend drama and all of this going on. Uh, It actually can be hard to connect the biblical story with its grand narrative uh, to our story. It could be hard to connect these stories. Does the Jesus story, with all of its excitement and with all of its beauty, just have to do with me going to a particular place when I die? Does it have a point of intersection, meaningful intersection with my life? Uh, Is this whole story, is this whole thing just about a transaction so that God and I can be okay? Uh, Well, the beautiful gospel is not just something to be believed, but to be lived out. And the scriptures talk about two symbols or two practices that help connect our story to the story of Jesus so that we can do a better job of living out the good news of Jesus Christ in the world in our everyday lives. And I want to say that again because it frames the entire message this morning. Uh, The beautiful gospel is not just something to be believed, it is something something to be lived out. And the scriptures give us two primary practices or two symbols uh, that do a good job of connecting our story to the story of Jesus so that we can live out the good news of Jesus Christ in our everyday lives. And the two that I want to talk about uh, are the two sacraments of the Protestant church, uh, baptism and communion. And so what, we do, what, what I want to do today is give you two mini-sermons in one sermon, hopefully tie a nice bow at the end to kind of connect them all. Uh, so you get two for the price of one today. It's pretty cool, right? Uh, So (laughs) let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 17. It'll be up on the screen. Let's go there first. Let's see. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 34. It says this. 
Uh, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Uh, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. But no doubt there have been some differences among you to show which of you has God's favor. Uh, But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. And don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that... When you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's this little familiar part that's heartwarming in the middle, and then there's all this kind of like scathing uh, critique, right? Uh, The Apostle Paul here is critiquing uh, the church in Corinth. And of course, we recognize the portion because it's referenced each week as we come to the Lord's table for communion. But what we may not recognize and what we may not be aware of is that that heartwarming portion that we come to every week as we gather around the Lord's table actually has a context. Uh, It has a surrounding. Now, there's a couple of historical points I want us to understand just to kind of set the scene. Uh, The first is is that when uh, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about the Lord's Supper, this is prior to the church uh, having formalized the practice of the Lord's Supper. Uh, So the context, well, for us, as we think about the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, those things, we think about this kind of ritualized practice that we do every week. Uh, some churches once a month, other churches once a quarter. Uh, but however often you do it, we kind of always think about it and place it in this kind of ritualized section of the, of the service. But this is not the case. Uh, the church, that is the capital C church, has yet to do that in history. And so when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he's actually talking about a meal in the home of a church member. Uh, so it's a common meal. Uh, Now, when you are going to host a bunch of people, this would have to be probably a wealthier member of the church who had a home that was capable of hosting so many folks. Uh, And so the host was most likely had a home that had a formal dining room that would fit nine to ten guests, and then an atrium where the other 30 to 40 guests would gather and sit. And here was the common meal practice uh, for that kind of setup. Uh, The 9 to 10 guests in the dining room would get more food, better food, 
more wine, better wine than those that were in the atrium. Uh, think of it this way. It's about the difference uh, between uh, first class and coach on an airplane, right? Where there's a very, very clear social hierarchy, right? You know, you're in coach and you got to pass all the folks who already are served and sitting in their cush seats in, in, the, in first class. It's a, it's a difficult thing, right? Uh, but here in the midst, so this is like typical, this is what would, would normally happen. A, a rich uh, member would, uh, of, the, of a group would host these folks and they're, they're, the dining room, the atrium, that was the kind of typical setup. So in the midst of this like social hierarchy, there is a problem in the church. And Paul actually communicates the problem by repeating a particular Greek term. Now, of course, we don't get this in English, uh, but in this passage, he repeats and does a play on words with this Greek term. Uh, the Greek term is synerkestai, uh, what we might think of as synergy. Now, synerkestai, which, which literally means, I'm probably saying that wrong for those of you who are Greek scholars, uh, but I'm doing my best. Uh, it, it means this, it means to come together. And I promise in Greek, it's just ambiguous as it is in English. Uh, in other words, it could mean to assemble, we have come together, but it also could mean to be united, like as in a team that's behind in the, in the late stages of the game, and we need to come together, right? We need to be united toward a particular cause. And so this Greek word could be to assemble or to be united. And Paul uses that play on words to, to make this simple point. When you come together, you aren't really coming together. He says, when you assemble, you aren't really united. And he wants to address this problem. He wants to write the letter to the church in order to address this problem. And in fact, as you read Corinthians, you realize that one of the primary things that, that Paul is trying to address in his letter to the Corinthians is the disunity in the church. And what he's saying is that, is that disunity is made up even more apparent when you gather for a meal. He says, this, this is the problem. This kind of social hierarchy is reflected in the church's table practices. That all the same status distinctions are being recognized as you gather in the body of Christ. Those who are in the dining room are getting more and better food and wine, while those who are left in the atrium are feeding on scraps. And Paul's overwhelming point in this passage is this, to follow the same table practices in the gathering of the body of Christ is to make things worse than to make them better. That if you take all the same kind of cultural table practices and you apply them to a gathering of the body of Christ, you have made things worse and not better. You have forgotten what God has accomplished in Christ on your behalf. In fact, to do this is to eat and drink judgment against yourselves. And so Paul reminds us that our gathering together is an opportunity for us to practice our unity in Christ. That when we eat a meal, or for us, when we come to the Lord's table as part of our communion liturgy, we are to rehearse the redemption story. Did you, you know, have you ever thought about communion that way? That communion is a rehearsal of the redemption story. It's not just simply a time to like, uh, remember the nice thing that Jesus did and then get a little snack before the Olive Garden, right? Uh, it's not that. <laughs> We are actually gathering, I don't know why I always use Olive Garden as that, because like I haven't eaten there in years, I'm gluten-free, this is like the most unfriendly restaurant for me in the world, right? 
But for whatever reason, I always use Olive Garden. Uh, so, but we, we are to rehearse this communion, this, this, this re, uh, redemption story. I almost derailed myself there. So communion, here's what I want to say. Communion actually connects our corporate story, right? Our kind of gathering, our shared life together to the story of Christ. You remember these two principal things connect this, this redemption story, this Jesus story to our own lives. And communion takes the story of Jesus and connects it to our shared life together. In other words, what Paul wants to say through the table practices is that what God has done in Christ has implications for our life together. And so for this reason, Paul goes into this beautiful passage and reminds them that on the night that Jesus was handed over to death, he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body which is given for you. And then he took the cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Each time you eat this bread and drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. And this isn't just kind of call back our memories to what Jesus Christ has done. But it's also do this in remembrance of me as, a, as more action-oriented. Do this in a way that honors me. Do this in a way that reflects what my plans for you as a body, for you as a church, for you as a gathering. In other words, for Paul, the table is a chance to rehearse the story of redemption that all of us, regardless of social status, are in need of a savior, and so coming to the table in unity is itself a way of remembering the redemption that we have received in Christ and then rehearsing the new realities that are true among us because of Jesus Christ. So that's, what I, that's, that's the key point. If you get nothing else about communion, that's what I want you to hear. Communion is a rehearsal of the new realities of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so at the most basic level, the table should be an embodiment that all the things that divide us, quote, out there are of no significance in here whether that be economic divisions, political divisions, racial divisions, athletic ability, (laughs) intellect, gender, it doesn't matter. Those things that might divide us out there are rendered of no significance here. In this way, uh, and this might be a little strong, but in this way, I've come to see communion as a peaceful protest. That while the world divides over race and economics and politics, etc., we rehearse the redemption story that all are one in Christ. That in Christ there are no divisions. And it becomes this kind of way of rehearsing that. And so I want you to see that. Um, sometimes, when we, sometimes when we receive communion every week, uh, we often get feedback that it loses the significance. Uh, it kind of loses its power if you do it week after week. Uh, and, and I just want to remind us that, uh, that that's really making a category mistake. Uh, that, that liturgies aren't dead or alive. Liturgies are either true or false. It's the worshiper who is dead or alive. 
And, and so if you're in a place where your heart just isn't ready and for you to, it would just be kind of just rote to come and do it, then I encourage you to stay seated during our time of communion. You are allowed to do that, right? But also I want to just remind you that there's tremendous power, that the Spirit of God is active as we come to the table, as we rehearse our redemption story together. But it isn't just that. It isn't just the, this rehearsal of redemption. It is also a foretaste of the kingdom of God. That is to say that it is a supper of celebration of hope. The communion is a celebration of hope. Because again, as we, as we kind of look at the landscape of what's going on around us, we might have a lot of opportunities to lose hope. We might have a lot of opportunities to think all is lost. And communion is a time for us to just come back, rehearse the redemption story, and remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In fact, I would argue that more than looking back, the supper looks ahead to the day when all things will be made new, that hope is the very foundation of the table practice, that everything else that it means and points us to is undergirded by the hope that it represents. And so again, even in this framework, communion is an act of peaceful protest that while the world spins in cycles of revenge and hate, we come to the table to remember that Christ has put an end to all of that through love and forgiveness. Amen? And so while the world divides over racial, political, and economic lines, we come to the table and proclaim that all are one in Jesus Christ of equal status at the table of our Lord. And so while the world chases happiness through the accumulation of things, we gather around the table with thanksgiving for all that God has poured out in his grace, in his abundance, and has redeemed us. And I just want to mention, too, as I close out this first mini-sermon, <laughs> I want to remind us that there's a difference between taking communion and receiving communion. And... And as a pastor, as a theologian, I want to encourage us to kind of switch our language here as we talk about communion from taking communion to receiving communion. And here's why. Taking communion implies that I am the acting agent, that I am the one who is active at the table. Receiving communion recognizes that God is the acting agent at the table. That it is only by His grace that these boundaries are broken. It is only by His grace that redemption is celebrated. That all of these new realities that we get to celebrate and rehearse at the table are such and are true because of the initiation of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? that God has taken the initiative. God is the acting agent. And so when I come to the table, I come to receive what God has for me in this place. And so, you know, we, uh, we love to be the acting agent. We love to be the fierce individual, fiercely independent. I'm the one doing the action here. I'm gonna come forward and take this. <laughs> what if we had more a posture of heart that said, I'm going to come and receive this. And I believe that as, the, as God is active at the table, as we are faithful to rehearse our redemption story, that, that God can actually do work in our lives through coming to communion. 
that God can actually work to heal broken relationships, to bring unity. I didn't intend to tell this story, but let me, let me tell it. A few years ago in the life of our church was a difficult time, and um, there, were, there were things that were going on uh, that just created a lot of division, and I was right in the middle of it. And there were some things that I felt like I had not handled properly and I needed to publicly apologize for. And so on a particular Sunday, I did that. I came forward to the, to the congregation, to you all, um, and apologized for what I felt like think were things that I mishandled. I did it with an open heart, uh, with a genuine heart, and, and asked forgiveness of the congregation. I'll never forget that Sunday as I was presenting communion to folks. This is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Rehearsing our redemption story, practicing the unity of God among us despite this kind of difficult season. I'll never forget when a couple came to me and as I served them communion, they said, we forgive you. We hear you and we forgive you. And in that moment, I felt like this is what the table is all about. This is the unity that we are to practice and to rehearse. And it was a beautiful thing. Because it wasn't someone just coming to take this. It was both of us receiving something from God who is the acting agent. That me receiving the forgiveness of the people and of God through the voice of this couple this couple receiving an open heart to accept and to hear my, my apology and my plea for forgiveness. It was a beautiful thing. And I think there is no better picture of what the table is all about. And so I want us to reframe it as not just simply a way to remember. It is that, but it is so much more than that. And I think it does such a phenomenal job of connecting the story of Jesus to our collective story. Does that make sense? Well, the train is going to run away here if I don't get to my second sermon. <laughs> uh, so the second symbol or the second practice that we've been given uh, is that of baptism. Uh, I invite you to look or click or turn to Romans chapter 6. I want to read uh, the first eight verses for us. Romans chapter 6 Verses 1 through 8, it'll be up on the screen. It says this. Uh, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
Now, Paul begins this passage by refuting logic that on the surface seems to make a lot of sense. The logic is this. If sin leads to grace, why not go on sinning? (laughs) Right? If A leads to B and B is a good thing, we should probably start doing more of A. (laughs) Right? And so some Christians were actually sinning like crazy in the church in Rome and believing that God's grace now has a more opportunity to shine. And so Paul addresses this concern or this question with a question. Can people who have died go on sinning? The answer is rather self-evident, maybe even obvious, that if someone has died, of course they can't go on sinning. They are free from sin. Uh, But this does little good for those who are still living, (laughs) which is precisely Paul's point. That on the cross, Jesus takes on the world of our sin, evil, hatred, greed, racism, addiction, all of these things that belong to death were absorbed by Christ on the cross. And then the weight of that sin brought him to the point of death. And then once dead, sin can do no more harm to Christ. Its power has been broken. And Paul's point is that now through baptism... Through baptism, we get to share, I get to share, you get to share in the death of Christ so that the power of sin might be broken in my life. And so Paul's point is simply this. By joining your story to Jesus' story in baptism, you are dead to the power of sin and you have been given a new identity in Christ. (laughs) And so baptism is this identity-forming act that connects my story to the story of Jesus and marks me as belonging to his body and to the church. And so it's this this beautiful thing. And this whole death and and raise to new life thing is is symbolized by uh, dunking people underwater and then bringing them back up, Right? In other words, there's a a both and here. We're dying to the power of sin so that we can be raised to new life. Baptism isn't just about putting people underwater. We bring them back up. (laughs) And it's this kind of, this symbol, this embodiment, can I say it? This rehearsal of what God has done in us in Jesus Christ. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's this great picture. It's, again, it's not just swimming pools in church, right? So these, these symbols, these practices aren't a snack in church and aren't swimming in church. There's so much more than that. <laughs> now, many people who come to faith in Jesus will choose to be baptized shortly after their decision of faith. And when they do, it, is a, it isn't just a testimony of the decision that they've made, but rather the Spirit of God is active in the act of baptism itself to help bring them to a clearer identity with Christ. And if you haven't been baptized, I encourage you to consider it as a tangible way of joining your story with the story of Jesus. If you are baptized or have been baptized... Every single Sunday is an opportunity to remember your own baptism. To affirm your baptismal identity. That's what the theologians say, right? You you receive this new identity in Christ through baptism. I've joined my, my story with the story of Jesus. This story of death and resurrection. I have died to the power of sin. I've died with Christ. The power of sin no longer has this, this hold on me. Now I'm free to live in new ways not yet possible before. 
And there can be sort of this like spiritual rebirth and spiritual baptism through the Spirit of God, absolutely 100%. I'm not trying to discount that. I'm trying to say that through the physical act of baptism, there's something else that happens. The Spirit of God is active in that place. And if we are baptized, then we have this opportunity to affirm and to remember our baptismal identity in Christ and remind ourselves that the power of sin has been broken in our lives and we are free now to live in the ways of love. And I don't know about you, but approximately every seven days or so, I need that reminder. I need a reminder that because of my baptismal identity in Christ, sin does not have a hold on me and I am free to live in ways of love that reflect the the image of God into the world. Man, thank you for your amens. I thought I was alone up here, that I was the only one that needed that reminder. (laughs) Well, let me say this, just maybe for clarity too. Sometimes we baptize infants and children who have a lot of life yet to live and a lot of decisions yet to be made. What their baptism does is it gives them a baptismal identity in Christ, marks them as belonging to the body of Christ and anticipates their coming to faith in Christ and all the ways that they will embody faith in the world. It doesn't make that decision for them, but it marks them as belonging to the body of Christ. It's like baptism for children and infants takes dedication and turns it up to 11, (laughs) right? So I would say, thanks be to God, the power of sin in your life has been conquered through the joining of your life to the life of Christ who is the victorious one. And now living into your baptismal identity, things like work and responsibility and marriage and kids and in-laws and friend drama can all be transformed. You with me? You remember this kind of epic story, resurrection, justice, all this kind of thing going on with Jesus' story. When you connect our own story to the Jesus story, it absolutely transforms our lives. It transforms what seems so mundane about our own life and brings new light and new uh, perspective to it. So as a baptized child of God, you are a living, breathing example of new creation. (laughs) Well, the sacraments help us to rehearse or uh, the title for this sermon is reenacting the story, so let me actually bring that in. Uh, The sacraments help us reenact the story of our redemption. They become physical metaphors for our journey of faith. And in fact, these sacraments help that which seems so far away to be right here. You with me? The sacraments help that which seems so far away to be brought close and be right here. I want to read um, a poem to you. It's a poem by uh, G.A. Studert Kennedy. And I always think, you know, if your first name is two initials, you're awesome. And that's just how the world works. So, uh, so here we go. This guy's awesome. I don't know who it is. It's in a book uh, that is, uh, was designed clearly in the 70s. So, uh, but it's got this poem. So, 
Uh, <laughs> it's like all the good books have ugly covers. And that's just how it is. Uh, so we're learning a lot about the world. But here, here's a, and I, eventually I'll get to this poem and actually read it. <laughs> Sacraments help that which is far away come near. And here's a poem written to make that point. How far above the things of earth is Christ at God's hand, right hand? How far above yon snowy peaks do his white angels stand? Must we fare forth to seek a world beyond that silent star? Forsake these dear familiar homes and climb the heights. How far? As far as meaning is from speech, as beauty from a rose, as far as music is from sound, as poetry from prose, as far as art from cleverness, as painting is from paints as far as signs from sacraments, as Pharisees from saints, as far as love from friendship is, as reason is from truth, as far as laughter is from joy, as early years from youth, as far as love from shining eyes, as passion from a kiss. So far is God from God's green earth so far that world from this. In the sacraments, that which seems so far away is brought right here. My prayer of today is simple. May you receive these beautiful truths into your life, into your heart, into your mind. So that as we gather around the Lord's table, we are reminded of just how near God is to us. And so today, as we gather around the Lord's table, I invite you to come not just with an attitude of remembrance or an attitude of thanksgiving, but I encourage you today, as you come to the Lord's table, to take this opportunity to remember your baptism, if you've been baptized, to just affirm that baptismal identity in Christ. If you've not yet been baptized, then maybe take some time to consider if the timing might be right to seek that. And certainly if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, you can affirm that and seek God's direction and will in your life. What are we to make of this Easter season? when graves are opened, when the dead are awakened, and when life refuses to be contained. We are to realize that nothing is impossible. Hope is never extinguished, and love is never conquered. And so we celebrate you today, Jesus, because you made it clear that death does not have the last word. You have filled us again with hope and new faith, and you have given us vision of new possibilities, new realities, and new ways of being. And so may we learn to embrace the mystery of that which we cannot fully explain. May our hearts hope for that which we cannot yet fully see. And may we learn to live and to love while death and despair are all around us. You see, resurrection happened because Jesus was first prepared to die. And then dying and then defying death, he refused to release his hold on life and love. And so now we choose to gather around this table in order to remember, to celebrate, to rehearse the redemption story so that we too can truly live 
through Christ, who on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so now, Lord of life, we share in this meal. We celebrate together and we remember you. And we will continue to do this until resurrection has flooded the entire creation. Amen? Amen.